Changes, the podcast of Post Life, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. My name is Paul Ford. I am the co-founder of Post Light and the co-host of Track Changes. And I'm Rich Ciotti, the other co-founder and co-host of Post Light. Sounds like equal footing, Paul, because the whole world thinks I'm like your Ed McMahon. I don't think. The, you, let me tell you something I just learned. People don't know that this is a post-light podcast. They think it's about you and me. They skip over the ad every time. Is that true? I think we should tell a secret right now. Like, okay. I will give you $5 if you... No, I'm not going to do that. I'm don't gonna... do that. Okay. We've got a couple of great guests here. But before we tell, about, tell anyone about our great guests, we should actually remind people of what we do, even though they're not listening. We're a digital product studio based in New York City. Uh, we design and build an architect and stand up great platforms, web, app, everything. And we design them. And it's, an, it's an important thing. Like we think a lot about the infrastructure and the technology, but we make things look and feel really good. User experience is a big part of what we do. Yes. And so if you have the need to make a big thing, you should get in touch with us and we will help you do it. All right. So, Rich. Yes, Paul. Uh, our guests are from... The Library of Congress. See, that just sounds big. It is. As it's soon as you thing. say it. It's a hell of a library. Yeah. You ever been there? I've never been there. I've been by it. It's big. And it's just not just physically big. It just lands big. It does. It's, it's no fooling around. It's the Library of Congress. So let's actually introduce who these human beings are across from us. We've got Abby Potter. Hello. And we've got Kate Zwart. Hello. Um, what do you people do with taxpayers' money? Oh, boy. <laughs> only Heavy. good things. This is only good things. We run a thing called the Library of Congress Labs. Okay. Um, my title is Senior Innovation Specialist. Okay. My title is Chief of National Digital Initiatives. Okay. What? Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So let's, let, let's break that down a little bit. All right. So uh, let's start with Abby. What's your actual yeah. job? Day to day, it is trying to convince people to use our digital collections. Most of that work is making sure people know about them, how to get to them, what they can do with them. And Kate, what about you? My job is, um, I think, more direction setting. And I think of it... Mostly as enabling the library to try new things in a, an environment that controls for risk and in contributing to and learning from community-driven projects. Which is very meta, but you used to also, like I know you used to be a developer, right? Yeah, I was a developer on the digital library um, side of the Library of Congress. Um, so I wrote the code that um, helps us ingest the storycore.me files and um, I helped shape the the way we um, architected our digital our digital library system. Okay, so this is you. You used to do that, and now you're sort of help, at a meta level helping more of that happen. Um, so, so uh, like a founding mother of our profession, software and libraries, Henrietta Avram, had this great quote, um, uh, information technologist by training and a brainwashed uh, librarian. I think that's, that's how, where I am. 
Tell me what people need to know about the Library of Congress, because I think a lot of our listeners are not thinking about the Library of Congress every day. So in the context of I've got two digital Library of Congress people here, what should everybody know? We're very friendly. (laughs) I think a lot of people feel intimidated dealing with the Library of Congress. Um, I know my own self, I didn't know before I started working there that you could just go. Anybody over the age of 16 can just go and get a reader's card. And that we've got lots of stuff online that's really interesting and cool. And we've got a couple of neat um, APIs and data sources that you can use if you're a programmer. And that if you need help or you get stuck, you can email us and we'll help you. Um, that we're here for you, that this is America's library, and it's intended for the use of the American people. So let me be a layman for a second. Uh, I don't know. I, I have an assumption, which I think many people do about the Library of Congress, that everything's in there. Beyond books, what, what can, what's in there? Yeah, beyond books. That's great. Um, so a lot of the collection is books. that Those tend to come in through copyright deposit. But we also have a bunch of really interesting special collections. Uh, So we have a great maps collection, manuscript collection. The American Folklife Center collects uh, information about American folk art and culture. A lot of music, a lot of moving images and sound. Um, That was all music in there? It's a selective collection. Um, so librarians make determinations about what should be in the collection. But it's it's a lot. It's meant to be a universal collection. So when Thomas Jefferson was one of the key people in the growth of the library. And he um, donated his own collection to sort of restart the library after it burned down in the War of 1812. And his collection was sort of based on universal knowledge and that there would be no subject that our lawmakers wouldn't have to consult in making the laws of the nation. So it is organized by what are the three? Like, Memory, reason, and imagination. Right. So that those are sort of the big Buckets. It's heavy. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah. It's a hell of a mission statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it doesn't have everything, okay. but it, it is the largest library that's ever existed on planet Earth. I'm not surprised. Okay. The fact that librarians are picking music, I think, is fascinating on that alone. I mean, I don't want us to dive into that, but I just imagine it's only like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Wow, that's a that's a deep librarian burn. <laughs> I, I don't. I didn't mean it that way. I just don't know if, if it's kind you know, of unnecessary. Guar <laughs> in the Library of Congress. I bet you it is. Uh, yeah, yeah probably. Uh, really? Is. That's yeah. see, that's cool. Now we can we can move on. <laughs> I can find out for sure, but I think it's a good bet. Yeah, I mean, we could search right now. Okay, so there's all sorts of stuff beyond books, and throughout most of history, it just existed in physical artifacts, right? Yep. So I think it'd be helpful to hear the spawning of sort of digital and and how it sort of took hold and and how we got to today. I think digital libraries really started with digitization of tangible assets. Um, So with the idea that we have all these books and maps and manuscripts that are not in copyright and could be viewable from anywhere in the world. So why don't we scan them and put them online? The Library of Congress was one of the first libraries to have a website. And so um, they put up these like very 90s looking um, like you know, purple background with links to things. Um, And then as we sort of, this collection got bigger, we started putting that in a modern web framework. So that's on LOC.gov. All of it is, you know, searchable. And and then as as information developed, our collecting methodologies had to change too. So um, now we're publishing online a lot. 
Um, so we have this robust web archiving program to selectively collect stuff on the web. I think one of the most interesting things to your audience might be our web cultures collection. So the Folk Life Center, which collects information about American folk culture and folk art, collected a series of websites uh, about the, the culture of the web. So they have Know Your Meme and, and things like that. By, by collected, just copied it and put it somewhere else? Yeah. So, so you can access it as if it was live? Because stuff dies on the web, right? Yeah. So I think there's two two goals. One is to preserve it for um, you know the future of our country so that researchers in the future can use it. But the other is the, a key part to what librarians do, which is organizing information and making it suitable for research. So collecting these things, contextualizing them with these, each other, making them findable. And then we have experts on staff who can answer reference questions. So if you Google Ask a Librarian, that's a service the Library of Congress provides to researchers who are looking for information about a particular topic. A human is going to respond a human, to Ask a Librarian? Yes. That's amazing. For free? <laughs> ask a Librarian? That's right. Ask a Librarian for free. And if they, um, if your question is more suitable to your uh, public library, they'll they'll point you there. If we have a collection about it, they can give you more information about it. And that's our job. So uh, Abby likes to say libraries are not book museums. And um, it's true. What libraries are are people, people who know the collections and can help you and can help you frame research questions and find information you wouldn't have been able to find on yourself. So we, we do I, have GUAR. Oh, that's amazing. Wait, so, we have a GUAR underground videos. That is so that cool. That you can request. Wow. So, you know. Here's the mark tag if you want to look at it. Oh, mark my record. goodness. So while we were talking, Abby was actively looking up at the Library of Congress on her phone. We need a screen grab of this. Yeah. This needs <laughs> to can go. You take a, can you take we a screenshot? We will put this on yeah. social media. Um, That's amazing. Okay. So, so Rich, you stereotyped. <laughs> I did, and I got I got crushed. You got destroyed. <laughs> I got destroyed. <laughs> that, that's what we're here for. <laughs> so well, I should actually mention the National Recorded Sound Registry. So yes. this is a registry the librarian puts out every year of significant um, sound recordings that we should preserve. And on that list are um, Metallica, U2. I mean, there's so there's like um, folk pieces and definitely artists you would never heard of, but also artists that are you know very important to our pop culture as well. Mm. Who decides when something goes digital inside the library? There's a basically a board that decides. And the, some of the criteria they use are um, what's the state of the tangible item? So if that is becoming not usable or they don't want to serve it in the reading room because it's fragile, they'll digitize that. But also they digitize things of public interest. So we just put the Hamilton papers up. Because um, everybody's very Hamilton focused. Yeah. I mean, not that we wouldn't otherwise, but it's also kind of. Um, top of mind. Top of mind, yeah. yeah. Well, with our huge collection, there's also with that comes how you know how do you decide what to what goes first? And there's a lot of discussions around it, and a lot of people have different priorities. So we have a system that tries to be rational about how to use our limited funds on digitizing things. I think a lot of people would it, it would like to see you know a lot digitized, uh, but you know we only have a certain amount of money to do that with, and so we have to prioritize. So it's very related to mission. It's just sort of, mm-hmm. okay. And if it's, you know, if we can if we can serve it online publicly, so if it's out of copyright, that that stuff, you know, usually goes first. If mm-hmm. if the original is unique or damaged or fragile, then, you know, that also matters. What is the coolest thing either one of you have seen at the library? Wow. Um, we have wax cylinders. Uh, recordings, some of the first recordings that were ever made. Mm -hmm. And uh, they degrade every time you play them. 
And so there's an effort in our preservation office to um, scan them at a really high fidelity and then use code to play that sound back. Oh, so visually scan them? Visually scan them. And Whoa. Then, okay. And then use the peaks and valleys of the scan to make sound. That but is cool. Because yeah. every time you play them, this is a way to get the audio out without degrading and altering the original. That's, That's right. a cool project. Yeah. That's okay. cool. That's badass. All right. I have, I have one. And the I only saw it recently because uh, we have an innovator in residence, Jared Thorpe, and he been, he's been sort of taking a tour around the library. And one thing um, that we looked at the other week was it, it was a contest run after the Civil War. It was a handwriting contest for left-handed people who were previously right-handed, mm-hmm. who were injured and can't use their right hand. So they, uh, it, 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 was a, it was like a contest in a newspaper. <laughs> this is the most depressing and amazing thing. This no, is amazing. It, it, okay. well, they're all dead. So yeah, I, no, it's, yeah. it's not really, but, um, yeah, it's fine. And, we, and we have all the entries don't, to don't that contest. That. <laughs> and, uh, and you can see, you know, the handwriting, which is, they had one for uh, like, lang- they had two different prizes for language and then beauty and artistry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would just didn't know something like that existed, number one. And then it was just very cool to actually see these people's actual handwriting. And these are just sort of everyday people, veterans. Yeah. And that stuff being in the Library of Congress is, is pretty cool. And the, and it's online, so you can see it online, too. That is really cool. Paul Ford, <laughs> yeah, what right. is the most amazing thing you've seen at the library? Ooh, we had a good tour of the library when I went down there. Um, the most amazing thing I saw at the library is it's kind of an abstract thing, but was the map collection. The map collection is several football fields in size of those really big flat drawers. And it's not organized in that or it's, it's, it's very organized, but they don't know all the maps. The maps are just in the drawers, millions of them. I think two million. I think. Wow. And they organize them by place. So you're like, hey, I need a map of France. And it'd be great if it was a little bit like this. And then a person goes to the France maps, looks through the maps, and is like, this one looks good. Or two Mm -hmm. or three. The oldest is on the bottom. So yeah. Uh, Go. Can you just open the drawer? I mean, you can. And if you're in there, but the room is so big that it's like you sort of, it has a vanishing point. Wow! And and it's just this like it's a it's a like a tribute to this form of organization because you just walk past this area and it'll just be Vietnam and you yeah. realize oh okay this is where we worked out Vietnam like as a as a as right. a country. Um, it's very easy in our part of the world to be like digitize everything, every you know, and then you realize there's that information. Maybe one percent of it is probably or less is actually available online somehow, right. and then the other ninety nine point nine percent or whatever is in filing cabinets that are organized by age and geography, right, and. There's no easy path to get those football fields of maps into our world of easy digital access. Right. Without probably what feels like $100 million or more. Yeah. Is there is that a mission to digitize the maps? Yes. I think the mission is to digitize as much of the material that we can make publicly available as possible. But the scanning is actually a small fraction of the cost because you have to then describe it and ingest it to, you know, the web application. And the cost in the programmers alone is is high to get all that material. Right, you got to get yeah. a room to put everybody in because you'd be doing so much scanning and, and like OCR would only catch a certain number of cases because mm-hmm. they're maps. Oh, sure. 
What are you guys working on today that you're most excited about? Probably the crowdsourcing. Yeah, the crowdsourcing is is the most uh, exciting to me. It's a big, exciting thing because I think that is one way where we can open up our collections to anyone who, you know, can use a website. So this crowdsourcing platform that we're working on is a way to have the public access and dig into our collections while we get some sort of useful data out of the interaction too. Does the crowdsourcing platform have like an internal name that you use to describe it? Code no, name. It does. <laughs> can you share that with the Drag Changes listeners? I can. Um, so its official name is the Citizen Historian. Mm. We've been calling it Chic. So Chic <laughs> is a framework for sort of putting scans on and letting people tell you things about the scans. That's right. So it's a it's a framework for inviting people to transcribe scans or tag scans and then a, a peer review process for accuracy. Um, but what I think is really exciting about the the transcription project is not not just not that the data will get out of it, but it's getting people to collaborate in the making of cultural memory. So I think um, one of the most important cons- constituencies of the library in my mind is the informed and curious people who are just want to read things and want to know stuff and having a framework for them to just come upon a random item from the past and understand it deeply, I think is really, really fun. Ephemera is magical. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the I think what what's great about digital collections is that they let you play with and explore things that were ephemeral or, or seen as relatively low value as opposed to the more formally like catalog structured stuff. And then when you get in it and it's very educating, you're like, oh, look at this ad. This is a scam. This is this was wow, they cared about this. That doesn't make sense to me. And you you realize, it's one of the things like where you realize that most of history is just kind of a nicely constructed tale filled with big, bold names. And most people actually experienced it as like crappy classified ads and, sure. you know, silly cartoons that were kind of racist. And like, you know, <laughs> right. I think the New York Public Labs um, menu project is a great example of that. So like mm-hmm. just reading old menus, like what were people eating? What were meals oh, structured cool. like? Sure. It's really neat. And it gives you a sense of what it was like to live that at that moment in a way that reading Thomas Jefferson's papers doesn't really give you that sense. Right. It's also you can't really stumble across Thomas Jefferson's papers. You know, <laughs> everybody knows where they are, mm-hmm. and and there's been a national debate as to how things went with Thomas Jefferson. And when you go and you see like, hey, we're gonna we've got aspic covered, you know, calf's head mm-hmm. at Delmonico's. That's like, actually what I had for breakfast. <laughs> that's, <right. laughs> that's right. It's a that's big in Williamsburg right now. They're trying to sort of bring yeah, back. They'll do it. Aspic and, and yeah. sort of brains. <laughs> um, okay, so people can come and add information to collections, and that's nice because that feeds into the global or the national commons mm-hmm. around these digital assets. That's a really mm-hmm. good thing. Like, I, it's hard to. I usually am able to find a negative or critical thing to say about almost anything. <laughs> Well, and we're, uh, the platform we're hoping will be sort of content agnostic. So we're really interested in audio transcriptions and, and how to do that. 
in sort of a crowdsourced way. And we're hoping this platform can handle all types of format. And since we're developing it uh, open source, hopefully other cultural heritage organizations can learn from what we're doing and use similar tools. So what's available now is a proof of concept application called Beyond Words that invites people to identify and transcribe cartoons and images in historic newspapers in the World War One era. And what we're working on is a, the content agnostic tool that Abby described um, for all for all um, written collections. Okay, so chic could expand to be videos, or could expand to be audio, or could expand. Okay, that's my hope. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a little bit about. I'm going to sound like an old man for a second, Paul. We do this a lot. Um, <laughs> young people. I I see, I have two little kids, and I interact with young people sometimes. And uh, the way they think about information, the way they see information, it's just little bits that are disposable forever, every day, all the time. Their, I don't need to Their see life anything. is ephemera. I see it with my kids. Yeah. It's just like what is worth storing away, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or even the notion of storage. Um, I grew up, you know, with an old Commodore 64 and I saved up money to get a, get a hard drive, um, a five and a, is it five and a half inch? Floppy drive, you're forgetting. Floppy drive, yeah, thank you. The 1540. So that was stu- that stuff was meaningful, even though it was digital. It was meaningful to to find great things and hold on to them. And now that's sort of gone. And how have you guys? Well, two part question: Have you guys thought about this and thought about how to sort of insinuate all this great stuff that you guys have into? Uh, I mean. I want to say future generations, which sounds corny, but feels like future, like the future. That's the thing. It's actually, it's (laughs) it's appropriate to say it in this context. I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel like I can do this now. So have you thought about this? Oh, definitely. We definitely, and our librarian is specifically interested in opening up our doors more to like teens and younger folks. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's worth like saying, when you say our librarian, you're you're talking um, about the librarian of Congress. The librarian of Congress, whose yes. Whose name is? Carla Hayden. Okay. So Carla Hayden is a federally appointed librarian of Congress. That's right. Who is your boss. Right. In a very, like in a, a couple levels up, I'm guessing mm-hmm. it's pretty big work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but the good news is millennials are actually huge library users. Um the younger generation, if you go to a university library now, it's packed with people. Hmm. Yeah, they're huge library users. Sitting on computers? Uh, sitting on computers, sometimes their own. And I think libraries have been rethinking what mm-hmm. libraries are, right, in terms of space, like physical space, and what what programming we can offer and how people use the collections. Um, and I think the other thing about the ephemerality of the material as far as the young people think about their what they create I think actually they don't think of it as ephemeral. They actually trust the world to keep it. Mm. So they don't think of their photos as disposable, Mm -hmm. but they don't think about storage. They've actually abstracted that, right? That's someone else's problem. And to me, that's actually very good. Yeah. Um, I think reconstructing an archive from someone's cloud services is very possible. Yeah. But I think there's been sort of mixed messages to kids about, you know, if you put a photo on the internet, it'll follow you for the rest of your life. In some ways... You know, that can happen, but what will most often happen is that either a serv- a storage service will go away or a sure. um, you'll forget to pay your hosting bill, you know, sort of by human accident or not accident. A lot of this data will not stay live if somebody doesn't pay for it or it manage it. It probably won't. No, right. I mean, that's I mean, it for your smug mug account, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of my stuff in the cloud and I've been thinking a lot about it. It'd be nice to have it at home. 
Yeah. Like, I'd like more optionality, you know, especially for the day when the big hack comes mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, something terrible. <laughs> Everything's like, gone. Like Gmail. Yeah. It's yeah. all. And yeah. I, I just want it. And I, what I realize is that to do it right, you basically need a kind of DevOps, sysadmin, API-focused programmer set of skills, which I have. So I'm like, okay. You. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And I'm in, in the extreme minority with that set of skills. And they're really hard to teach and train, too. So it's not like I can like, here's how to back up your life. The way to back up your life is to become a programmer. Yeah. And like, actually, I don't think that, I mean, you, you nailed it, Kata, which is, I don't think they view, like, what does backup mean? Like, what are you talking about? I started. Yeah. That's enough. I <laughs> started right. the thing. That means it's been taken care of into the star bucket or whatever. What, what's going to happen with those cloud services in the Library of Congress? Like, are, is that, that's not your mandate, right? Like, that, is that just sort of. Well, I think. In some ways, the if you think about the you know Thomas Jefferson papers that we have now, those are all you know on paper. And uh, like we were talking about earlier, the you know our our sort of output and intellectual sort of record is not on paper anymore. So what what we want to collect in the future? So even I don't know five years from now, there's a a, a famous artist who we want to collect their papers. We're not. We're going to be collecting their hard drives. They're, right. going to, you know, there and then there. A lot of times, people collect passwords for their, you know, for their Gmail or their cloud services. But it's not. It's very much a influx practice right now. There's some tools, sort of forensic type tools, for uh, going through hard drives and identifying files and trying to identify PII and what what we can save and what we can't. What's PII? Uh, personal identifying information. Oh, okay. Uh, so That's it's a good one. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> Guys, there's a PII all over the place. Um, okay, so there's a whole new set of things. So people out there listening, if you have like good ideas about personal archiving, this is nobody has the answers yet. People are working on it, but sure. um, but it is not a solved thing. I, I think it's all going away. I, I don't <laughs> think anything's going to. I mean, if I needed to get my uh, stuff off of a floppy. A, an old Commodore 64 floppy. I, there's probably services you send it out to. Not even, charge you. not even for C64s. They're not even out no, there. No, you get in touch with like Jason Scott or, or Ben Fino or Aiden, who's yeah. like, like there are archivist specialists who work with museums now. Okay, and that's I mean, and there probably I mean, there must be somebody. But yeah, there, there's a community. There's a some there's yeah. a tool called BitCreate. Bit mm-hmm. curator and there's a community of people who are working in libraries and museums who are actively working on this and got it and trying to build tools around it. But it's not for consumer Joe public. This is got for it. institutions. You mentioned Jason Scott. Yeah. The Internet Archive is obviously the real deal. I mean, I think it's practically viewed as the quasi official archive of the Internet, even though most of the links well, the are busted. Library of Congress partners with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to ask what what is the connection to the Library of Congress? Well, we've partnered with them for years. We uh we use their tool to do our web archiving. We contract with them to do our web archiving. So, um we've worked with them very very closely for many years. We, Shouldn't it be in there? Shouldn't the Internet Archive be inside? In the Library of Congress? Mm-hmm. So, the Library of Congress is a selective collection. So, we have librarians who are trained and some who are experts in certain subjects who decide what we're going to have. I see. Um, so it's not, we don't collect everything in any direction. It's not a dumb backup of right, the right. internet. Okay. Yep. 
I see. Yeah, so like web archives, we have a lot of election-based archives. We have a lot Got of event-based archives where we go much deeper than, than an archive goes. But it, that that's a curatorial choice that we've made. Um, Got it. But we work very well with them. And it's it's I would say it's best to have both. You know, we, there's the broad crawl that the Internet Archive does. And then we then us and then there's many other libraries that do web archiving at a deep level. And that's sort of how all libraries and archives have worked, where each everybody sort of collects their own way and their own things. And uh, hopefully we get a representative sample as a community, it, it's, it's it, good. These, to- are, these are also very different cultures. Like I'm just <laughs> laughing to myself, like putting the internet archive inside of the library of Congress would be like letting timber wolves loose <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. They're, they're on a real mission and it's great. Here's the thing I'm actually kind of, I'm poking fun, but there's a, a thing that really changed. I remember about eight years ago, it was hard to get information out of the library of Congress. And I was really interested in, and it was relevant to my work and there was stuff about – and there were sort of a lot – there were a lot of fights in public as to what should and shouldn't be out. And it, it was weird that a government organization was kind of erring on the side of an extreme level of lockdown. And and it was a sort of a weird time. And and when I started to have a conversation with, with the two of you and, and, you know, went down and gave a talk, it was a very different organization just in – how it was reaching out, what it was, you're erring on the side of making stuff available. And uh, it really struck me. I mean, it was just sort of like, okay, wow, the Library of Congress really, really wants things in the commons for people to use and reuse. And I was like, can I hit this API? Uh, You know, and I think I was emailing with Kate and you were just like, yeah, whatever, go (laughs) see what happens. I was like, well, what about, and you're, no, no, no big deal. Just make yourself at home. And that's a great message for a taxpayer-funded organization to to send. Like it, it didn't used to feel that way, and it and it does now, which is great. I'm just making that. I know that that might not be the easiest thing for you guys to talk about, but I just it's worth noting for other developers in the cultural common space, some of whom are listening, that this is a very accessible organization now. I'm so delighted that you think that, and I think we've you know, under the new leadership have made a huge effort to make things more available and to be more welcoming. And, you know, it is your taxpayer money. Like you've paid for this. And I think being accessible in all different ways of using it. uh, I think part of our job in Library Congress Labs is to be an advocate for the developer community who's interested in using our material and to help when uh, people get stuck or the formats that we're making things available in or not super friendly web formats because that's not the formats they were created in. We really do want people to feel at home. Um, As we close this out, you know, one of the things we like to ask people is what do you need? Who should get in touch? Who are, are you trying to fill jobs? Are you looking for specific kinds of people? Are you looking for people to use your services or or like what, what would be good? Oh, that's a great question. I got lots. Okay, go. We actually, um, we are looking for partners. We are looking for people who want to do stuff together. If you want to host an event related to hacking on collections material, or if you want to do a project together, you want to do an audio transcription project, we want to do that too. Let's find a way to do it together. Uh, We're very open. We're looking for um, people to make stuff, make stuff with library stuff. You know, we have a whole page on labs.loc.gov, which is called LC for Robots, where we lay out all of our um, APIs and our bulk data sources, make stuff and talk to us about it. Like, that's what we're here for. We want people to use the material. Um, 
we are, the Library of Congress is working on developing its philanthropy. Um, so we're looking for funding. Uh, so if people know of people who are interested in supporting financially a different programs, digital or, or analog, um, they should come talk to us. And uh, we're looking for friends. So if there's people that we should be talking to or things that we should know about, please let us know. We're very friendly and we're looking to be a part of the community. Great. Abby, anything? Um, <laughs> that was pretty thorough. <laughs> all the things. I want all the anyway, things. Can I have another cup of coffee? <laughs> well, we're, we're uh, I mentioned the Innovator in Residence program. We're um, working on a mechanism to try to twice a year bring um, people to the library to do interesting and new things with our collections and sort of highlight them and showcase them publicly. So we're um, we're going to hopefully announce something soonish in the next year of how how that will work and um, how we can um, sort of get people in on that path uh, towards sort of officially working with us on something public. I should also mention we have a congressional data challenge right now. So we're, uh, we have a contest where we're inviting people to make something, make something digital with congressional information. And you can find that on the lab's website as well. Um, and if people are interested in other stuff that we're doing, they can follow us on Twitter at LC underscore labs. Um, they can subscribe to our new email list. Um, okay, great. Kate, Abby, this has been a lot of fun. Really interesting. I want to go now. I walked by it the last time. You are I want to go in the next time. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having us. This was really fun. Very, very fun. Thank and you. And also, in the interest of accuracy, the Library of Congress actually has 5.2 million maps in our maps collection. Oh, not yeah. 2 million. Not 2 million. I, Yikes. Wow. Not, before quite, we, not quite in order of magnitude, but bad. Yeah, bad. very bad. bad. Yeah. Very Terrible bad. Mistake. Yes. <laughs> but before you come, we have to get that guar video. Oh, so that you can watch hell it. yeah. Well, Rich, I'm going to head on down to D.C. and uh, do some hacking on Mark data. When are you coming back? I'm not coming back. <laughs> it's great. That's all I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I'm going to nice. be happy. 25 million book titles is like the data set of my dreams. I know. It's, I don't. That's I, happy. I don't know how to tell that to the people in my life. Don't I tell won't. it to the people in your life. We'll just leave it here privately on our podcast. Um, let's tell the people about Postlight. Well... This has been Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight. A digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. You know what we do. We make amazing web stuff and platforms, and then we power it, and it's really good, and we work with big companies and big NGOs and media companies and all that stuff. All that stuff. So you can trust us. You can get in touch. You can send an email to hello at postlight.com. Yes. You can give us five stars on iTunes if you're in the mood. Up to you. Thanks, everyone. Bye.